Chapter One of the Film Mystery. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Sibella Denton. The Film Mystery by Arthur B. Reeve. Chapter One A Camera Crime. Camera! Kennedy and I had been hastily summoned from his laboratory in the city by District Attorney Mackay, and now stood in the luxurious, ornate library in the country home of Emery Phelps, the banker at Terrytown. Camera! You know the call when the director is ready to shoot a scene of a picture? Well, at the moment it was given, and the first and second cameramen began to grind, she crumbled, sank to the floor, unconscious. Hot and excited, Mackay endeavored to reenact his case for us with all the histrionic ability of a popular prosecutor before a jury. There's where she dropped. They carried her over here to this Davenport, sent for Dr. Blake, but he couldn't do a thing for her. She died, just as you see her. Blake thought the matter so serious, so alarming, that he advised an immediate investigation. That's why I called you so urgently. Before us lay the body of the girl, remarkably beautiful even as she lay motionless in death. Her masses of golden hair, dishevelled, added to the soft contours of her features. Her wonderfully large, blue-gray eyes, with their rare gift for delicate shades of expression, were closed, but long, curling lashes swept her cheeks still, and it was hard to believe that this was anything more than sleep. It was inconceivable that Stella Lamar, idol of the screen, beloved of millions, could have been taken from the world which worshipped her. I felt keenly for the district attorney. He was a portly little man of the sort prone to emphasize his own importance, and so, true to type, he had been upset completely by a case of genuine magnitude. It was as though visiting royalty had dropped dead within his jurisdiction. I doubt whether the assassination of a McKinley or a Lincoln could have unsettled him as much, because in such an event he would have had the whole weight of the federal government behind him. There was no question but that Stella Lamar enjoyed a countrywide popularity known by few of our presidents. Her sudden death was a national tragedy. Apparently Mackay had appealed to Kennedy the moment he learned the identity of Stella, the moment he realized there was any question about the circumstances surrounding the affair. Over the telephone the little man had been almost incoherent. He had heard of Kennedy's work, and was feverishly anxious to enlist his aid, at any price. All we knew, as we took the train on the New York Central, was that Stella was playing a part in a picture to be called The Black Terror, that the producer was Manton Pictures, Incorporated, and that she had dropped dead suddenly and without warning in the middle of a scene being photographed in the library at the home of Emery Phelps. I was singularly elated at the thought of accompanying Kennedy on this particular case. It was not that the tragic end of a film star, whose work I had learned to love, was not horrible to me— but rather because, for once, I thought Kennedy actually confronted a situation where his knowledge of a given angle of life was hardly sufficient for his usual analysis of the facts involved. "'Walter!' he had exclaimed, as I burst into the laboratory in response to a hurried message. "'Here's where I need your help. You know all about moving pictures. So if you'll phone your city editor and ask him to let you cover a case for the star, we'll just about catch a train at 125th Street.' Because the film world had always fascinated me, I had made a point of being posted on its people and their activities. I remembered the very first appearance of Stella Lamar back in the days of general film, when pictures were either licensed or independent, when only two companies manufactured worthwhile screen dramas, 
when any subject longer than a reel had to be of rare excellence, such as the art films imported from France for the licensed programme. In those days Stella rose rapidly to prominence. Her large, wistful eyes had set the hearts of many of us to beating at a staccato rate. Then came Lloyd Manton, her present manager, and the first of a new type of businessman to enter the picture field. Manton was essentially a promoter. His predecessors had been men carried to success by the growth of the new art. Old Pop Bellum, for instance, had been a fifth-rate oculist who rented and sold stereopticons as a sideline. With blind luck he had grasped the possibilities of Edison's new invention. Just before the break-up of General Film he had become many times a millionaire, and it was then that he had sent a wave of laughter over the entire country by an actual cable to William Shakespeare, address, London, asking for all screen-rights to the plays written by that gentleman. Manton represented a secondary phase in film finance. Continent Films, his first corporation, was a stock-jobbing concern. Grasping the immense popularity of Stella Lamar, he had coaxed her away from the old studio out in Flatbush, where all her early successes had been photographed. With the magic of her name, he sold thousands of shares of stock to a public already fed up on the stories of the fortunes to be made in moving pictures. When much of the money so raised had been dissipated, when Continent's quotation on the curb sank to an infinitesimal fraction, then it had developed that Stella's contract was with Manton personally. Manton Pictures Incorporated was formed to exploit her. The stock of this company was not offered to outside investors. Stella's popularity had in no way suffered from the business methods of her manager. Manton, at the least, had displayed rare foresight in his estimation of public taste. Except for a few attempts with established stage favorites, photographed generally in screen versions of theatrical classics and backed by affiliations with the producers of the legitimate stage, Continent Films was the first concern to make the five-reeled feature. Stella, as a Continent player, was the very first feature star. Under the banner of Manton Pictures she had never surrendered her position of preeminence. Also, scandal, somehow, had failed to touch her. Those initiated to the inner gossip of the film world, like myself, were under no illusions. The relations between Stella and Manton were an open secret. Yet the picture fans, in their blind worship, believed her to be as they saw her upon the screen. To them the wide and wistful innocence of her remarkably large eyes could not be anything but genuine. The artlessness of the soft curves of her mouth was proof to them of the reality of an ingenious and very girlish personality. Even her divorce had helped rather than harmed her. It seemed irony to me that she should have obtained the decree instead of her husband, and in New York, too, where the only grounds are unfaithfulness. The testimony in the case had been sealed, so that no one knew whom she had named as correspondent. At the time I wondered what pressure had been exerted upon Millard to prevent the filing of a cross-suit. Surely he should have been able to substantiate the rumours of her association with Lloyd Manton. Lawrence Millard, author and playwright, and finally scenario-writer, had been as much responsible for the success of his wife as Manton, and in a much less spectacular way. It was Millard who had written her first great continent success, who had developed the peculiar type of story best suited for her, back in the early days of the one-reel and general film. It is commonly known in picture circles that an actress who screens well, even if she is only a moderately good artist, can be made a star with one or two or three good stories, and that, conversely, a star may be ruined by a succession of badly written or badly produced vehicles. 
those of us not blinded by an idolatrous worship for the girl condemned her severely for throwing her husband aside at the height of her success. The public displayed their sympathy for her by a burst of renewed interest. The receipts at the box-office, whenever her films were shown, probably delighted both Manton and Stella herself. I had wondered, as Kennedy and I occupied a seat on the train, and as he left me to my thoughts, whether there could be any connection between the tragedy and the divorce. The decree, I knew, was not yet final. Could it be possible that Millard was unwilling, after all, to surrender her? Could he prefer deliberate murder to granting her her freedom? I was compelled to drop that line of thought, since it offered no explanation of his previous failure to contest her suit, or to start counteraction. Then my reflections had strayed away from Kennedy's sphere, the solving of the mystery to my own, the news value of her death, and the events following. The star, as always, had been only too glad to assign me to any case where Craig Kennedy was concerned, my phone message to the city editor, the first intimation to any New York paper of Stella's death, already had resulted, without doubt, in scare-heads and an extra edition. The thought of the prominence given to the personal affairs of picture-players and theatrical folk had disgusted me. There are stars against whom there is not the slightest breath of gossip, even among the studio scandal-mongers. Any number of girls and men go about their work sanely and seriously, concerned in nothing but their success and the pursuit of normal pleasures. As a matter of fact, it had struck me on the train that this was about the first time Craig Kennedy had ever been called in upon a case even remotely connected with the picture field. I knew he would be confronted with a tangled skein of idle talk, from everybody, about everybody, and mostly without justification. I hoped he would not fall into the popular error of assuming all film players bad, all studios, schools of immorality. I was glad I was able to accompany him on that account. The arrival at Terrytown had ended my reflections, and Kennedy's, whatever they may have been. McKay himself had met us at the station, and with a few words, to cover his nervousness, had whisked us out to the house. As we approached, Kennedy had taken quick note of the surroundings, the location of the home itself, the arrangement of the grounds. There was a spreading lawn on all four sides, unbroken by plant or bush or tree, sheer prodigality of space, the better to display a rambling but most artistic pile of grey granite. Masking the road and the adjoining grounds was thick, impenetrable shrubbery, a ring of miniature forest land about the estate. There was a garage, set back, and tennis courts, and a practice golf green. In the centre of a garden in a far corner a summer-house was placed so as to reflect itself in the surface of a glistening swimming-pool. As we pulled up under the porte-cochere, Emery Phelps, the banker, greeted us. Perhaps it was my imagination, but it seemed to me that there was a repressed animosity in his manner, as though he resented the intrusion of Kennedy and myself, yet felt powerless to prevent it. In contrast to his manner was the cordiality of Lloyd Manton, just inside the door. Manton was childishly eager in his welcome, so much so that I was able to detect a shade of suspicion in Kennedy's face. The others of the company were clustered in the living-room, through which we passed to reach the library. I found small opportunity to study them in the rather dim light. McKay beckoned to a man standing in a window, presenting him to Kennedy as Dr. Blake. Then we entered the long, panelled chamber which had been the scene of the tragedy. Now I stood, rather awed, with the motionless figure of Stella Lamar before me in her last pitiable close-up. 
for I have never lost the sense of solemnity on entering a room of a tragedy, in spite of the long association I have had with Kennedy in the scientific detection of crime. Particularly did I have the feeling in this case. The death of a man is tragic, but I know nothing more affecting than the sudden and violent death of a beautiful woman, unless it be that of a child. I recalled a glimpse of Stella as I had seen her in her most recent release, as the diaphragm opened on her receiving a box of chocolates, sent by her lover, and playfully feeding one of them to her beautiful collie, Laddie, as he romped about upon a divan and almost smothered her with affection. The vivacity and charm of the scene were in sad contrast with what lay before me. As I looked more carefully I saw now that her full, well-rounded face was contorted, either with pain or fear, perhaps both. Even through the make-up one could see that her face was blotched and swollen. Also, the muscles were contorted, the eyes looked as if they may be bulging under the lids, and there was a bluish tinge to her skin. Evidently death had come quickly, but it had not been painless. "'Even the coroner has not disturbed the body,' McKay hastened to explain to Kennedy. The players, the cameramen, all were sent out of the room the moment Dr. Blake was certain something more than a natural cause lay behind her death. Mr. Phelps telephoned to me, and upon my arrival I ordered the doors and windows closed, posted my deputies to prevent any interference with anything in the room, left my instructions that every one was to be detained, then got in touch with you as quickly as I could. Kennedy turned to him. Something in the tone of his voice showed that he meant his compliment. I'm glad, McKay, to be called in by someone who knows enough not to destroy evidence, who realizes that perhaps the slightest disarrangement of a rug, for instance, may be the only clue to a murder. It's—it's it's rare. The little district attorney beamed. If he had found it necessary to walk across the floor just then, he would have strutted. I smiled, because I wanted Kennedy to show again his marvelous skill in tracing a crime to its perpetrator. I was anxious that nothing should be done to hamper him. End of chapter 1